0: And welcome to Audio Judo. I'm Matthew. And I'm Kyle. We are your podcast of music discovery, proud members of the Pantheon Podcast Network, your premier source of music podcasts. Uh, recently, we have been venturing out into the world of video. Oh, yeah. Which tracks, since two of us are actually video people for a living. So that kind of makes sense. Right. Um, so we've taken this podcast into the video world, but our focus is still the audio and not trying to be too showy. You know, no special effects, probably. No lightsabers. Explosions and shit. here. Yeah. Uh, but if you're interested in seeing how ridiculous uh, we look when we record these episodes, uh, you can find our YouTube channel at our website audiojudo.com. There's a button there. Um,
1: I look this ridiculous all the time, not just when we record. I just need to clarify that you
0: don't get dressed up for the no. for us recording. No, no, sorry, I just look ridiculous. That's how you all look the all the time.
1: I look this dumb all the time. Oh, that's weird. It is.
0: Uh, Besides that link, there's also a number of uh, other helpful links related to our podcast. And if you want to support the podcast and get some cool stuff, you can do that too. How would they do that, Kyle?
1: Uh, You can go to our Patreon at patreon.com slash audio judo or from our website. Uh, We have two tiers right now. The lower tier is called the front row seats tier. It's five bucks a month. And for that, you get Early access to all of these episodes, uh, some little uh, mini episodes we call Judo Chops that come out in the in between weeks to our regular episodes. Uh, you also get a shout out as a loyal producer um, and access to some behind the scenes content that we occasionally post, uh, like some of these videos, um, uh, little audio snippets that we had to cut out of episodes for time or brevity, and uh, sometimes if we do an interview, we'll post the unedited interview on there as well. Yeah. If you really want to help us out and get a little more something in return, uh, you can step it up to the backstage past here. Uh, at that tier, it's $20 a month, a little bit of a step up, but for that, you get everything that the front row seats tier has plus a special gift signed by us usually. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, after one year at that patron level, you can host an episode with us. You get to pick the album and then we have to talk about it. So you can pick a terrible, terrible album and make us talk about that. Or if you have a band, you can make us talk about your album or, uh, you can actually pick a good album and maybe we'll enjoy doing the episode with you. Who knows? That's true. Crazy, right? Yeah, that was
0: good. Chef's kiss. That was well done. Thank you. I liked it.
1: I've been practicing in front of a mirror.
0: It shows. Uh, So this week, uh, I take over as the picker of albums that are way too big for us to discuss in one episode. Uh, Normally, that is Kyle's area of expertise, (laughs) but as you will see over the next few episodes... He has gone a little rogue Mm -hmm. uh, and picked some fairly obscure albums.
1: It's because I was picking so many big-ass albums, and I was just like, I need to tone it down a little bit and pick some stuff that's uh, still enjoyable to listen to, but not monstrous. Right,
0: that makes sense. So I felt that it was my duty to appeal to the masses sometimes and to do something that is popular for one reason or another. So For this episode, we uh, head to what is somewhat unfamiliar territory for us, because we're usually in the 70s and 80s. True. Into the early 2000s with the album American Idiot by Green Day. Monster album. Oh my God, huge. And for all intents and purposes, put the band back on the map Mm -hmm. after achieving massive success with their Dookie album from the 1990s. This album would become a cultural touchstone, a protest album of sorts firmly planted in the middle of the George Bush presidency. Besides its sales, the album would grow legs and become a Broadway musical. Mm -hmm. It nearly spawned a film version That uh, apparently has been scrapped.
1: Well, that's unfortunate. I didn't know it had been scrapped. I know that that rumor has been around for
0: For a a decade now. But But would generate a documentary about its making and its lasting impact. But before we go any further talking about this particular record, let's spend some time talking about the three gentlemen responsible for the record, the boys of Green Day. What do you got?
1: They met in 1987. Billy Joe Armstrong and uh, Mike Durant were both 15 at the time. They had a friend who was a bassist named Sean Hughes, and they met a drummer named uh, Raj Punjabi. Uh, They formed a band under the name Sweet Children. Sweet Children. Uh, They performed live for the first time on October 17th, 1987 at Rod's Hickory Pit in Vallejo, California, which sounds
0: delicious. And do you know... Why they played Rod's Hickory Pit? I
1: have no clue why they played Rod's Hickory
0: Pit. Because Billy Joe's mother was a waitress at Rod's Hickory Pit. Oh, there you go. (laughs) So, yeah. So, Durnt, then known as Michael Ryan Pritchard, Mm -hmm. they formed a band, and in 88, uh, Armstrong and Durnt began playing separately with another drummer, John Kiffmeyer, who's also known as Al Sabrante. And he ended up replacing Punjabi. Hughes decided to leave the band, and Durnt would subsequently move to the bass, because he at that point had been a guitarist as yeah. well. In 1988, Larry Livermore, owner of Lookout Records- uh, Excuse me, it's Lookout Records. Oh, sorry, yeah, There's, there's an exclamation, exclamation mark. For, Lookout Records. And also, one of their neighbors saw a performance of theirs and signed them to a contract on the spot. Why not? You probably don't have many artists to begin with, yeah. so why not? Uh, and in 89, April of 89, they released their EP, 1,000 Hours. But right before they released it, they discovered another band using the name Sweet Baby. Which is pretty damn close to Sweet Children. Right. So to avoid confusion, they decided to change their name. Someone suggested the name Green Day for the amount of weed that they s- used to smoke, which, you know, that tracks.
1: The note that I wrote here was they the term Green Day is referred to <laughs> spending a whole day doing nothing but smoking pot.
0: Yes, that is a green <laughs> day. Referred. <laughs> <laughs> Dad yeah, jokes. Uh, and in an uh, interview in 2001, Armstrong said uh, a refrain that you and I have heard a gajillion times while doing this podcast: that "quote Green Day was the worst band name in the world." <laughs> we hear that all the time. It turns out that every band hates their name. Yeah, this it's sucks. I don't want to be this. Oh,
1: this is our name? Now
0: you sold 150 we'll put... million copies. Yeah. yeah. shit. I guess that's okay. So in 1990, they released their first full-length album, 39 Smooth. It is a super raw record, if you've yes, ever listened it to it. But almost all of the components that would later be signatures of the band were already there. Super punchy guitars, simple three-chord melodies, and lyrics about weed and sex.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Only thing missing would come soon. Uh, they released a couple of EPs about the same time. A slappy... And sweet children, not slappy sweet children. Slappy <laughs> and sweet children. You know, after you give a lot of sweet children sugar, they get a little slappy. Slappy, and then the other one is oh, called okay. sweet children. Two, two separate EPs. <sighs> All right, that's rough to get through. Uh, around this uh, this time, after their first full tour, Kiff Meyer started attending Humboldt State University in California, and was replaced temporarily by Lookout Drummer Trey Cool. <laughs>
1: Wait, this one, no, this one doesn't have an exclamation oh, damn mark. It.
0: This is the
1: lookouts. I keep getting it wrong. No exclamation mark. So I don't know if you, I don't know how you pronounce it, but I would not pronounce it. The lookouts. I I think just it's better it that lookouts. way. But it's way better sorry. that way. But, but which one do they hate? <laughs> that's the but that's the one we're going to pick.
0: Oh, well, that's true. So we'll do have they, to
1: go back in time. They probably them, hate lookouts. Probably. So we were like, that's the one you got to pick.
0: So they would offer uh, Trey Cool the full-time position shortly after that. Kiffmeyer graciously accepted the opportunity to leave the band. And, you know, sometimes the rock and roll lifestyle is not for everyone. Yeah. They released their second full album, Kerplunk. Kerplunk. In 1992, and that would sell about 50,000 copies, which is a pretty rare achievement for any sort of independent record. And all this buzz created a bidding war. For the services of the band. Uh, After hearing the band's recordings, producer Rob Carvalho encouraged Reprise Records to sign the band. And the band stated that Carvalho was the only person that, quote, got it and (laughs) the only one they connected with. And they set to start recording their major label debut, Dookie. What do you know about Dookie? Dookie.
1: It was released in February 1994. It was a huge success right out of the gate. It pushed them forward with a bunch of heavy airplay of uh, songs like Basket Case and When I Come Around. And it also had a ton of really generous uh, uh, video play on MTV. Oh, yeah. MTV loved this album and loved the videos produced yeah. from it. It went on, actually went on to win the Grammy for Best Alternative Album in 1995, mm-hmm. which is uh, pretty good for being their, what, third album?
0: Third album, yeah. yeah. Sold 10 million copies in the U.S. alone. And earn them a spot on the uh, Woodstock concert, oh, yeah. 25th anniversary Woodstock. And of course, in true Woodstock tradition of peace and love, they would start the world's largest mud fight.
3: Of course. During
0: their set. And during the mayhem of that set, a security guard uh, mistook Mike Durnt for an out-of-control fan and punched out several of his teeth during the performance. <laughs> it's awesome. But that concert, because it was witnessed by several million people via pay-per-view. Mm-hmm which in and of itself seems exceptionally out of place for Woodstock. So Woodstock, a concert in 1969, had 400,000 people at, of which only half of them paid for the opportunity to see the concert, Would now turn into this humongous money-making enterprise. Yeah. And it seems like the things that the children of the 60s were rebelling against all those years ago, corporate greed, capitalism, the man, they were now completely okay with and profiting from They grew up up and profited from from
1: it. I was about to say, this was the same Woodstock where they were selling bottles of water for 20 bucks. And, you know, oh, you want a a meal? That's $40. $40. Yeah,
0: because we can get it. Yeah. Anyway, the concert was seen by millions of paying customers and further extended the band's reach. Uh, The band's next record, the much darker Insomniac, did not do as well as Dookie, selling a measly three million copies. (laughs) What a
1: piece of garbage. And
0: had a slew of nominations, but also seemed to wear the band out as they canceled their tour of Europe in the summer of 1996, citing exhaustion. In 97, they released Nimrod, which again saw them taking a different approach with songs A different style, like ska and surf. And there was an acoustic number that maybe you've heard of called Good Riddance. Yeah. Better known as Time of Your Life. So
1: we got to talk about this real quick for a second, if that's cool with you. Well,
0: it's the song that would become the class song of a million high schools, but go on.
1: that's why. uh, So this was right about the time I was just entering middle school. And so that became the song that every... Every single year, all the way through high school, towards the end of the year, oh my god, to play "Time of Your Life," <laughs> play. Can we? Can that be the school dance song? Uh, can it be the school dance? It's. It just speaks to my soul. It's everything that I'm going through as a teenager, and I just remember. <laughs> Hating that song—that makes sense. I liked Green Day. I liked a lot of their other stuff up to that point. I hated this song so much because it was so overplayed, and all the like popular kids would get
0: all emotional about it.
3: My teen feelings are coming out now. Uh.
0: What's your class song? Time of your life. Uh, You Uh. mean Good Riddance? No, Time of Your Life and Green Day, bro. Why don't we take the most popular sitcom in the history of television? End it. With this song, too. Seinfeld, I'm looking (laughs) right at you. Really?
1: Really? (laughs) (laughs) I forgot about that. (laughs) Oh, my God.
0: Uh, That was uh, was so disappointing. But anyway, they toured for a majority of 97 and 98 and then came back with a folk-inspired album called Warning in Mm -hmm. 2000. And although they went on the warped tour to support it... The general consensus was that the band was losing its relevance because yeah. it was changing its sound from somewhat what some consider to be snot core at that time to a more melodic approach, yeah. which to me just sounds like they were growing, which, you know, that's what you want artists no, to do. No, man, if you don't
1: continue to sound like shit,
0: you're not a real right? artist. If AC/DC can just make their 37th album sound exactly like their 36th album, <laughs> that'd be great. All right. So, while the last several albums had sold a million copies each, warning would only be certified gold. So, the band would then release two consecutive greatest hits compilations, international super hits and shenanigans, most likely to buy some time away mm-hmm. from the road and recording. And in 2003, they entered the studio to make this record.
1: Oh, you, there's one more thing that happened. American hit a go ahead. Too. Yeah. So, in 2002... They actually went back to the studio to start recording again. They apparently recorded as many as 20 tracks um, Mm. for an album that was going to be called Cigarettes and Valentines. It's
0: weird they named it before they even recorded it. I don't get that.
1: And the demo tapes were actually stolen in November 2002. Yeah. And it was after that that they kind of had a reckoning. They kind of said, do we really want to continue doing this? And uh, Rob Cavallo said, look, we can remake this if you want, but do you really think that that's your best stuff? Right. Do you really think those tapes... Are your best work? And the band sat down and talked about it and they determined, no, they weren't. And then they went back into the studio to start recording what American is, Idiot, what right. well, became American Idiot.
0: Right. And Armstrong had spent a lot of time aw- uh, away from the band, kind of catering to his addictions. Um, yeah. At, which he had described as both fascinating and horrifying. Uh, and his marriage was kind of disintegrating. His bandmates considered him very controlling, and they were miserable and felt like the band seriously needed to change uh, directions, either end or change directions. Armstrong was afraid to show them new songs because of this controlling nature, but they began to have weekly meetings, almost like therapy, uh, and it began to reinvigorate the band and Armstrong, and he felt that it it required more participation from his bandmates, and that was the way to proceed. Then they lost all their shit and had to do this again. So... American Idiot was released on September 21st, 2004, to great critical acclaim mm-hmm. and commercial sales. Kyle, do you have those ridiculous numbers? I do.
1: It charted in 27 countries, including number one in Australia, Austria, Canada, Ireland, Norway, Scotland, Sweden, Switzerland, the UK, both the album and the rock and metal charts, and the U.S. Billboard Top 200. Mm-hmm. It stayed in the top 10 of the Billboard 200 for almost a year after release. Uh, it stayed on the chart total for 101 weeks. Uh, Green Day's first number one in the U.S. It sold 267,000 copies in its first week alone. 2005's fourth highest selling album with 3.4 million units sold that year. Uh, It has sold over 16 million copies worldwide, including 6.2 million in the U.S., where it's 6X Platinum certified. 2.4 2.4 million copies in the UK, where it's 8x platinum certified. It is in the top 15 best selling albums of the 21st century, possibly top 10, depending upon whose numbers you use. On its release, it actually was not carried at Walmart due to explicit content, which is, <gasps> I know everybody says, oh, that's actually a huge deal. Because by this point, Walmart was so ubiquitous already, and even more so now, Yeah. music sales a lot of times depended on being able to get an album into Walmart. That makes sense. And that's why it was such a big deal when Walmart was like, we're not going to carry explicit content, because suddenly it meant that those albums, they had a really good chance of flopping because you couldn't get it into the place where the majority of people were going to go to be able to buy it without having to drive to another town or whatever.
0: Right, because all the music stores had... Started shuddering by exactly. that point.
1: Um, but yeah, even without Walmart's support, still did great. Uh, it was nominated for Album of the Year and won the 2005 Grammy for Best Rock Album. It also won the American Music Awards' Favorite Pop Rock Album of 2005, the Juno Award for Best International Album of the Year 2005, the MTV Europe Music Awards' Best Album of 2005, and the Brit Awards' Best International Album for 2006. Hmm. It also appears on tons of top whatever lists, mm-hmm. including the number one spot on Kerrang's the 50 best rock albums of the 2000s, and number one on Pop uh, Pop Doses, the 100 best albums of the decade.
0: <sighs> yeah, it's a pretty behemoth.
1: damn popular.
0: It's a behemoth. And it is truly, in my opinion, the first true punk rock opera. I would agree with that. Other than a couple of side road song lies, it, it's a complete storyline yeah. from top to bottom. Uh, And they listened to Ziggy Stardust, and they listened to the Who's Quadrophenia while making this record. They listened to musicals. They listened to rap and let the current music influence what they were writing. And besides being a rock giant, they incorporated Latin sounds, timpani, glockenspiel, and hammer bells, items not associated with punk music even a little bit. There are tablas, double-recorded acoustic guitars, which leads many to call this album pop punk instead of just punk. Who cares
1: yeah well one of the other things they did too is they straight up said when they were going back into the studio we want to do things like what the beatles were doing at this point in their career where they'd already had several successful albums they kind of had a slump and then they reinvented themselves with sergeant peppers Mm -hmm. they wanted to do the same thing and they modeled a lot of the stuff that they did in the studio off of that innovation they also took a much more relaxed approach to recording kind of in that same vein Mm -hmm. uh, that the beatles did where instead of being like hey we have Two weeks in the studio to record this as quick as possible. They took, what, six months Yeah. to record this album. They stayed at the Hollywood Hotel during this time. There were times where they had to record uh vocal sessions later in the day because Billy Joe was so hungover. Yeah, well. I mean, just all kinds of weird stuff that- Rock and roll. It, yeah, it allowed them to relax a little bit more and actually put something out that they were proud of and that they actually wanted to do, mm-hmm. rather than just rolling out the next album. Right. The other weird thing here, too, is- they recorded the songs in order. Yeah, they they would fully complete recording one song, be happy with the maybe not the final track, but a final enough track, before they moved on to the next. That seems nuts to me. Yeah, I don't it, think I don't think anybody else has ever done that that I know of. It's pretty. I'm sure rare. somebody has, but
0: it's pretty rare. It's like shooting a movie chronologically, mm-hmm. which is very rare. You you take the good bits and you move around and you yeah. shoot it in the most economical way, the, but. The
1: other weird thing that I saw in researching this a little bit is they claim that it only cost $650,000 to record. You're telling me six months of studio time, having the band staying in a hotel, which they probably destroyed. Couple times. Couple times. (laughs) Paying for, you know, all the, the auxiliary people that needed to be there, mm-hmm. all the utilities, all that stuff, only cost $650,000. No. I don't believe that number for a second. No. I think this is easily a million-dollar-plus album.
0: I would say that's probably but, more accurate.
1: But I saw this number like three or four different places, and I don't know if they're citing one another, but that seemed way low to me.
0: So ly- lyrically, it describes an anti-hero named Jesus of suburbia. Uh, about the current social climate of America. It's kind of all wrapped up in a scathing takedown of the political climate of America. Uh, We are firmly entrenched, like I said, in the Bush presidency, just a few years removed from the 9-11 attacks. The divisiveness that is so prevalent today was just starting to take root, although there were still some vestiges of the smothering national pride that took place in the wake of the attacks. Yeah. I'll go more into that when we do the track by track. But it was a super weird time. Um, as you know, Kyle, my politics are pretty clear, and it's evident what side of the aisle I come down on. But America as a whole really rallied together in the year or two after the terrorist attacks, and there was a wave of nationalism for a while. Yeah, And while I may not have voted for him, for a little while at least, I supported him because... That's what you did. You rallied behind your leader because if you didn't, it was scary to think where we might end up. But that was wearing off by 2003, 2004. Uh, It was clear that we were going to places for the wrong reasons under the guise of the right reasons, and we were now going to silo up even bigger than before. The factions that would be moderate at the beginning with some room for compromise would now set their feet in concrete and make it clear that it was either our way or no way, and the world was about to get a lot scarier. (laughs) So I remember the first time I heard the title track in 2004 and saw the video, American flag soaked in green waves of liquid, washing out the colors of the country. And it was a revelation and pretty amazing, striking, you know, and then you listen to the song and the guitars exploded from the speakers. Uh, It was the best sounding record that I had heard in years. And that son of a bitch lived in the CD player in my car for like a solid year. (laughs) It was addictive. It was hard to put down. And I remember telling my brother back then, this was the best album that I'd heard in a decade, like the most complete, best sounding, like full package, like from top to bottom.
1: And what's crazy too, is that it had such mass appeal Yeah. because no matter how much you say, oh, the, you know, the, the country was very much divided at the time and still is, but this type of music normally like pop punk or whatever you want to call it would have been a very divisive album. There are songs on this album that are still played today on like Pop Hits Radio and, you know, uh, all over the place. I've even heard a couple of these on, like, uh, a country
0: yeah, station before. Garth Brooks plays it on his channel. Yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah. It's like, wait a minute, what? <laughs> You're playing Green Day on a country station. All right, cool, sure. And that, to me, it says, you know, not only this hugely massive appeal, but not that they sold out to make a pop album necessarily, but they did something that they, like I said before, they are proud of and that they wanted to do – and it was hugely popular.
0: Yeah, and culturally relevant. Yeah. And once again, Rolling Stone missed the boat. Right. They gave this album a three-star rating, calling it a mess. And here, again, <laughs> is our old pal and douche nozzle, Robert Christigau, who called the <laughs> album a dud and asserted that Armstrong's lyrics eschew sociopolitical content for the emotional travails of two clueless punks, one passive, one aggressive. Both projections of the auteur, adding that there's no economics, no race, hardly any compassion. I forgot that you have to write about what he wants you to write about if you want to be relevant. Yeah. He has got no room for, you know, other opinions. But of course, for an album that was a mess, it was number 225 on the top 500 records of all time. Right? So it says Rolling Stone. So they don't know what the fuck they're doing. <laughs> Horrible garbage. Wait, a lot of people liked it. It's in top it.
1: 500 stamp.
0: A lot of people liked it, right? Oh, shit. Okay. Well, now we like it. I like it. We we love it. We love it. We always liked it. What are you talking about?
1: I liked it before anybody else liked it.
0: Oh, I liked it first, like Nirvana. Album artwork? Yeah. Yeah?
1: Okay. Great cover. Incredibly iconic. That's one of my favorites. Great. The cover's uh, black and white and red. Uh, In the upper left-hand corner, in white letters on a black background, it says Green Day. Then Tiny presents. And then in red text, American Idiot. No capitals, by the way. Mm Mm-hmm. To the right is a stylized white arm that is holding on to a red heart-shaped grenade uh, so tightly that it's starting to squeeze blood out of the palm of the hand, uh, which is running down the arm. Uh, on the back, it's all black with the track listing on the upper left. On the lower right is the pin from that grenade that's been pulled out laying on the bottom right. Well, they once again recruited uh, Chris Billheimer, uh, who designed the cover for Nimrod and International Super Hits. Uh, excuse me, International Super Hits. It's super Hits. Actual, it's got yeah. an exclamation mark, so we got to
0: do that. He's done designs for Bare Naked Ladies, REM, yeah. Widespread Panic, ton of other bands. Neutral Milk Hotel, yeah. uh,
1: very famously. Yeah, and his designs are, are are great.
0: Did you go to his website? I did. So cool. Did the the like the splash page? Mm-hmm. Did you notice? So if you go to the splash page, it has the. This <laughs> is really good. It says this was the easiest way to make a portfolio. And the screen is just a collage of images of David Letterman holding up the CDs of the bands that were performing on the Late Show that he had designed the covers for. Yeah,
1: that's pretty damn good. It's pretty
0: ingenious. I love it.
1: A little ballsy. But I, like at first, I got to be honest with you, the first time I was like, what is this, fucking broken? Is this a 404 <laughs> page? And I'm like, why can't I do anything here? And why then is I there so like, much Letterman about? Oh, I get it now. He's holding up the albums.
0: Uh, you can find that at uh, Billheimer.com. That's B I L heimer.com. I would say he actually
1: got a pre-release of all these uh, tracks from this album and listened to it and heard the line, uh, "And she's holding onto my heart like a hand grenade" from the song "She's a Rebel." Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was like, "Oh yeah, that's that's it, that's the cover." He also drew some inspiration from uh, one of Saul Bass's posters for the 1955 drama film "The Man with the Golden Arm."
0: It's one of it's Kyle's favorite movie series of all time, right? The James Bond movie series, isn't it your favorite? No, this is "The Man with the Golden Arm." Oh. I thought he did James Bond stuff. I
1: think he did do a couple of James Bond um, posters.
0: Oh, that's I said the I legendary think, film poster designer who did a w- lot of work for Kyle's favorite movie series. Oh, there you go. But I wasn't referencing that one movie.
1: Oh, there you go. I'm sorry. <laughs> that's okay. Yes, I think he I did do a couple of Bond films, if I recall correctly. Don't quote me on that because I'm not 100% positive. I think but he did. This one is close because the first time I read it, I was like, oh, I didn't know he did The Man with the Golden Gun. And then I went and looked. I was like, that doesn't look like Saul Bass at all. If you look up The Man with the Golden
0: Arm- what was that movie about?
1: Uh, no clue what the film's about. I've never seen it. <laughs> huh. <laughs> Maybe it's a guy who, uh, you know, a little too much, and then his arm turns to gold.
0: Maybe he didn't do any. Uh, I could be wrong. But, he didn't. Uh, Maybe I misread that. Uh, well, whatever. My fault.
1: One other thing that Chris said is uh, that although he felt the uh, red is, quote, the most overused color in graphic design... He felt that an immediate its immediate qualities deemed it appropriate for use on this cover. He explained, quote, I'm sure there's a psychological theories of it being the same color of blood and therefore has the powers of life and death. And as a designer, I always feel it's kind of a cop out. So I never used it before. But there was no way you couldn't not use it on this cover.
0: Mm, I like it. Yeah. It's a good cover.
1: They also sort of changed their entire image for uh, the band changed their entire image for this album and then the con the, the subsequent tour, tour. Uh, they took a lot of influences from uh, Chinese communist propaganda um, they changed their entire stage persona they all wore black like military' cut jackets with red highlights so like red ties and red bow ties mm-hmm. and a red armband like you said it reinvigorated the band and completely changed their image
0: mm-hmm it's one of my favorites. Yeah, it's, you, a, it's great. Uh, ready to do a track-by-track? Track? We can do a break? Take yeah, a break. Yeah, let's take a quick break and we'll come back and do a track-by-track. Track. All right. Don't Smother Nature is a one-stop shop for sustainable home goods. They do the research to compile all the best and most affordable options and group them into a convenient online location. With smooth navigation, helpful support, and easy returns and tracking, they make transitioning you and your home to be more Earth-friendly, a simple and accessible process. They just had their grand opening, so browse their extensive catalog now at DontSmotherNature.com. That's DontSmotherNature.com. American Idiot.
1: Na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na. Right? That's what I wrote down as the first line on my notes.
0: That is the first line of the song. it's great. I would say the best way to start your album about the way you perceived America to be at the time is uh, punching it in the mouth. Right? Call everybody an idiot. Right? Very few better opening songs to a record (laughs) than this one. Four chord piece of delicious pop punk. Fast, short, explosive. Uh, Although the band had success on the modern rock charts, this was their first ever hit on the Billboard Top Hot 100, as this song would peak at number 61, which isn't really a hit, but... Yeah, it's still pretty good, though. It became their first top five UK single, peaking at number three. Premiered at number one in Canada, because of course it did. A song that rips the American government, topping the charts in Canada? Who saw that coming? Who'd have thought? The uh, song itself was nominated for four Grammys, including Record of the Year. And in its confusion and hypocrisy, Rolling Stone magazine named it the number 13 single of the decade, because they still can't figure out what the hell is going on. <laughs> Armstrong said he wrote the song after listening to the song That's How I Like It by Leonard Skinnard mm. while driving to the studio. He remembers being furious and asking himself, why on earth would you be proud of being a redneck? The lyrics that follows are from That's How I Like It. I like my women hot and my beer ice cold, real fast car and my whiskey old. I can slow drive down an old dirt road. That's how I like it. I can turn my music way up loud, ain't nothing better than the sound of a crowd, American flag, it makes me proud, that's how I like it. Now, while I can respect the sentiment in this song and have no issue with people that live their lives this way, it is very much the credo of a lot of country music fans. But I can also understand how three city boys who grew up in the Bay Area, concrete jungle, as it were, would have no ability to relate to that song whatsoever. Yeah. Armstrong arrived at the studio and began angrily writing this song, asking his bandmates if it was okay that this was the direction he was headed politically, and they were for it, because they felt the same way. And the song blasts through the airwaves like this...
1: was super worried that people would be insulted by this track until he realized that rather than it being a finger-pointing song of anger, it could be viewed as a call for individuality, mm. which I thought was very fascinating.
0: There's some seething anger here. Oh, yeah, just a little bit. And if you remember, this was the time that Fox News was starting to flourish. Yeah. Uh, the right wing was finally starting to get a foothold in television news. They had been dominating the radio airwaves for years with Limbaugh and others, but they had always struggled on television. Yeah. But since 9-11 and that big glut of nationalism that followed, they were kind of primed for success. As Armstrong would say, they did everything they could to piss people off. He would routinely perform this song with a George Bush mask on, you know? I
1: just, remember seeing those videos. It's great.
0: And it's a great song, really. If yeah. you break down the rest of the album like we're going to do, it really is only one of two really political songs on the record yeah. anyway. the other is holiday mm-hmm. the rest of the record is more about cultural divisions, not necessarily political ones yeah this song is
1: also a little dangerous Matthew
0: why well, how how so
1: According to song facts, this song came in at the number one position on the list compiled by the South China University of Technology of the most dangerous songs to listen to while driving. According to their research, listening to higher tempo music is more likely to make you drive faster and risk dangerous maneuvers. Songs with more than 120 beats per minute have the most negative impact, and American Idiot is at 189 beats per minute. It came in at the top of that list.
0: That's a lot of beats.
1: It was followed very closely by Miley Cyrus's Party in the USA <laughs> and The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Obviously, very dangerous songs. Uh, just on the opposite end of that, Led Zeppelin's Stairway to Heaven, considered the least dangerous song. Mm makes sense. It's
0: probably the most likely to fall asleep. Right. Uh, sleepy sh- driving just right off the side of the road. Uh Jesus of Suburbia. What about him? This is where the story begins really yeah. for the record as we are introduced to the anti-hero protagonist, Jesus of Suburbia. Yeah,
1: this is a suite of music. It consists of five parts. It's 9 it, minutes long. Yeah, it's huge. Those are titled Jesus of Suburbia, City of the Damned, I Don't Care, Dearly Beloved, and Tales of Another Broken Home. Uh, And going back to what we were talking about earlier, how they kind of had these little almost therapy sessions that the band would get together and talk about what they were doing. Yeah. The way they made this and uh, the other suite of uh, music towards the end of this album that we'll get to, they each created these little 30-second snippets. Mm -hmm. And they were like, this is what I want to do with something. They then picked the ones that they liked the most, put those together and expanded them out a little bit. And they each kind of worked on one another's pieces until they came up with these little suites. I thought that was super interesting.
0: Yeah, it is interesting songwriting. It, they actually released this as a single, mm-hmm. but it was shaved down to six and a half minutes for radio play, which still is too long for yeah. pop radio. One thing that I do remember that was very cool was on the next album's tour, 21st Century Breakdown, they would ask uh, the audience if anyone knew this song on guitar And would invite that person to play with them so Billy could just sing it. Wow. Uh, And the band has a rapid, uh, rapid, rabid fan base. So, of course, every town had someone. Uh, And here in Vegas, uh, that person was 11. Wow. And he stole the show. He was fantastic. (laughs) And he knew every bit of it. Every bit of it. It was great. So the song is about Jesus, not Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus of suburbia, a lower middle class suburban American teenager raised on a diet of Diet Coke and Ritalin. Mm -hmm. Jesus hates the suburbs and leaves for the city, but that doesn't happen all at once. Kind of slowly unravels as he is telling his story. And you hear what a crap and boring life he has. He sits around, he gets stoned, his mom and his mom's boyfriend are always gone, so he essentially could do whatever he wants, and that's usually nothing. His friends go to the mall, uh, which Was the Mecca, the cathedral of the suburban teen?
1: This was kind of the era, too, that was just beginning to die.
0: Yeah. So, and they treat uh, the things written on bathroom stalls as holy scripture. You know, it's a nothing existence. So he hates it, and he leaves. Uh, We more or less learn where he is. He has legions of fans, disciples, and they are based out of Anaheim, the home of Disneyland, Mm -hmm. the happiest place on earth. And that is super great writing because you juxtap suppose, you know, the happiest place on earth with these kids who are bored out of their minds and high and just wasting their lives away while we're fighting a war and wasting other lives in defense of nothing. It's super smart.
1: Yeah. Billy would also change that lyric when they were uh, touring live. So instead of Anaheim, it's whatever city they're in. Ah, which I think is really you know I, I like it with Billy. Well, yeah, because it
0: is every city.
1: It's a little kiss assy, but I like it. And eh, nothing wrong with a little kiss assy.
0: <laughs> so this lyrical section right here, uh, which is the bridge, is so it's really wonderfully written. So-
1: Because you're mine. I walk the line. So much influence from Johnny Cash right there. And in fact, the line, and I've walked this line a million and one fucking times, but not this time. It's great. I love it. I, again, I, I like it when bands-
0: little throwback
1: like yeah, that? Yeah, there's a little bit of it, and they openly acknowledge it. You know what I mean? It's not some secret like, oh, I don't know where it came from. Wait, I, what? I, what do you I, mean? I, we made this in a vacuum, and nobody knows what it means. Obviously, you're influenced. There's Art's not made in a vacuum. You're influenced by things that are you're listening to and what's going on outside, <laughs> which I think is great. I, I think that it's it's a cool little snippet there.
0: It's very poignant storytelling in a punk rock song. And the music is so – it's vibrant, and he uses tons of different guitar sounds for each different section. And this is like that full wall of sound. It just washes over you. And if you haven't realized it yet, listener, this album is best played as loud as you fucking can stand it. Yeah. Because it is mixed so well. It won't distort at super high volume. It just seems to get better and better and better. Yeah. Yeah, it's such a – it sets a great table for – for that part Especially of the Especially
1: coming from their punk background and the time that this was recorded, that was rare. Yeah. Because we were right in the middle of those loudness wars Ugh. and a lot of punk bands were like, no, you got it's got to be this blown out, gross sound. And to have them say, no, we actually want it to sound good, that's great.
0: Credit to Rob Carvalho, yes. the producer for that. Yeah. He brought a lot of really high skill levels to yeah. this mix. One other thing, I was wondering if you were going to bring it up or not. They
1: mentioned that they hang out in front of the 7 Eleven. As of November 2021, there are 78,029 7-Eleven stores in 19 countries and territories around the world.
0: 78,000?
1: That is a lot of 7-Elevens. That's a
0: lot of Slurpees. Yeah. That's a lot of uh, dried out hot dogs. Right? <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's been on the roller for three days, so. It's still good. It's still good.
0: Uh, holiday? Holiday! It's the other really political song on the record. Uh, He is once again lighting President Bush aflame, taking him to task pretty overtly for the uh, war in Iraq. And it's a pretty straight shot across the bow of American conservatism. Mm -hmm. Uh, He talks quite a bit about the song being about how the right will play one group of people against one another uh, in the song, The Gay Community, in order to win more votes. And that's usually how the political game is played. You play one minority against another minority to cancel them out. So what?
1: I was gonna say. I feel like this is very uh, poignant right
0: now. You think?
1: Very. uh, hmm, Wonder if something's going on right now that this could. uh, hmm. I can't think of anything. I can't. hmm, We'll just let's just keep going. It'll come to me. Can't put your finger on it. Can't quite put my finger on it. It'll come to me
0: later. Uh, This was a third single released from the record, and it was released after the song it leads into, "Boulevard of Broken Dreams," uh, because that song did so well. This one did quite well, too. Mm-hmm. Reached number nine on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100, number one on the both the modern rock chart and the hot mainstream rock chart. It's been used in a ton of movies and shows and stuff. Uh, and the chorus is refrained. This is our lives on holiday was written to reflect the average American's apathy towards the issues of the day.
3: Yeah.
0: It is not an anti-American song, but an anti-war song. And it sounds like this. Armstrong did an interview with Rolling Stone in 2009 and said this about the song. He said, That was a time in our country when it was moving into a war for fictitious reasons. A lot of it had to do with politics and oil. It felt like the country was beginning to come apart. I think the catalyst of where we're at now, really, is with George Bush. So this song was just about trying to find your own voice and your own individuality and questioning everything that you see on television, in politics, in school, in family, and in religion. Yeah, that's... Uh, as far as how it relates to the overall concept of the record, this is just Jesus of suburbia yelling out, expressing his beliefs to the world. Yeah. I think it makes sense, like kind of what uh, Maya Wynn said when we talked about her, just like the internet, just sort of yelling in the middle, uh, you know, yelling in a room. Nobody's really listening. We're just yelling at each other.
1: From a concept standpoint, too, I kind of take this to think of like Jesus of suburbia has left his hometown and he's headed to the big city. This is the road trip to get there.
0: mm. He's this, kind of seen America song, falling apart on the side of the road. Exactly.
1: He's driving somewhere. He can, he's, you know, it's the classic road trip part of, you know, every teen movie. Right. You know, where they're driving along and listening to music and this is the music that he's listening to and it describes all the stuff that he's seeing and all the things that are happening
0: until he gets to the city and you know where he ends up? He ends up in the boulevard of broken dreams, right? Certifiable huge hit of the record, mm-hmm. peaked at number two on the Billboard Hot 100. Held off the top spot by Candy Shop by Fifty Cent.
1: Uh, I could see that,
0: but it did uh, top the charts in four other countries as well as hold the number one position on six other charts here in the states. I didn't know that there were that many charts, but whatever. It was also number one on the Readers' Choice Ooh. Rolling Stone list singles of the decade. At least the leader, or at least the readers get it right. Right. When the magazine can't.
1: When the magazine itself doesn't.
0: Right. Won the Grammy for Record of the Year, right? And also MTV's Video of the Year. Mm -hmm. And to date, this is the only song to ever do that in the same year. Yeah. What else? What do you got? Uh, I was going to say, I
1: got a whole lot about this song. Do you? Yeah. uh, So uh, like we said earlier, the master tapes for Cigarettes and Valentines were stolen. I think I have this timeline, right? This is very confusing and there's conflicting data here. I believe after those master tapes were stolen, but before the band got together and sort of had their own come to Jesus, you know, moment and say, we do want to continue being a band. There was a time where uh, Billy took a trip to New York for two or three weeks. He was standing in the East Village. He spent a lot of times walk- uh, a lot of time walking around the city, spent his nights playing jam, ses- jam sessions in the basement of the hi-fi bar in Manhattan. And he actually wrote a lot of the lyrics and came up with the idea for this song at that time. Uh, he was heavily influenced by uh Gottfried Heinlein i Helm um, Helm Helnwein. Helnwein, I can't ever pronounce that. Gottfried Helnwein. With the same name as this song, The Boulevard of Broken Dreams, mm-hmm. featuring James Dean, Humphrey Bogart, Marilyn Monroe, and Elvis Presley sitting in an all night diner. I guarantee you've seen
0: That guy is a piece of work, by yeah. the way. <laughs>
1: 2005 VH1 Storytellers program featuring Green Day, Billy Joe Armstrong stated that the title of the song was, quote, nicked from a painting of James Dean walking alone. Mm -hmm. There's also a bunch of other influences here as well. Uh, There's another song titled Boulevard of Broken Dreams written in 1933 by Harry Warren and Al Dubin for the movie Moulin Rouge, the original, the 1933 version of it, uh, and sung by Constance Bennett. That version has actually been covered by people like Bing Crosby, Tony Bennett, and Amy Winehouse. So, if you ever see Amy Winehouse's version of Boulevard of Broken Dreams, and you're like, that's not the same song. That's because it isn't. Why. Also influenced Matthew by another song that we're very familiar with. Your favorite person in the whole world. Bullshit. Matthew. Noel Gallagher from Oasis felt as though this song was a ripoff of his song.
0: Bullshit. We used the same quote during that episode right? where he says Armstrong had waited. Uh, he should have waited until I was dead before stealing my songs. I at least pay the people I steal from that courtesy. First of all, we know that's not true. He stole from a shit ton of people, both living and dead. Oh, I knew you'd be excited by this. Second of all, I have listened to both songs in question, this one and Wonderwall, and I cannot find the similarities. Same chord progression, maybe, but tons of songs have similar chord progressions yeah. and aren't stolen. There are a finite amount of chords to choose from. But perhaps Gallagher needs to check what he's listening to in the first place. Right? Because there was a very popular mashup in 2004 done by DJ Party Ben mm-hmm. which consisted of elements of this song, Wonderwall, Travis's Writing to Reach You and Eminem's Sing for the Moment. I hate Oasis. <laughs> <laughs> Fuckheads. It's so, oh, I'm so stupid glad I got to bring that up. Anyway, meh you already said Jesus of uh, suburbia wandering the streets nearing a breaking point about to crumble uh, and that's what the lyrics represent because that's what Billy Joe was uh, experiencing and it sounds like it is
2: between the lines what's fucked up and everything's alright check my vital signs and know I'm still
0: So you already mentioned Gottfried Heinwein. Mm-hmm. Ah, piece of work, man. Yeah. Controversial, provocative. A lot of his work revolves around Nazism and the mm-hmm. Holocaust. He also did a Scorpions album cover. Oh, really? So there's that. I have one on my wall right here, oh. but that is not the one he did. Oh. He did one for uh, Blackout, and it's a self-portrait on the cover, and it's got like his eyes gouged out. It's really fucked up. It's weird. Hmm. And not a very good record anyway. Would
1: that be a Blackout
0: Yes, if you're scorpions, yes. That's exactly what it is. (laughs) I love that song. Uh, Fuck, Oasis. Okay, are we the waiting? (laughs) Are we, we are? The waiting? The waiting? Yeah. Yeah. Jesus of suburbia is- What? What is up with the
1: drum rhythm at the beginning of this song?
0: Oh, I didn't didn't get a tape. It's
1: very weird to me. And it feels like often, several people online suggested that it might be trying to mimic a heartbeat-
0: That is slowing down or speeding up. Mm, It's kind of like a martial beat. It's very much has like a marching band site type thing going on. It was one of those things where
1: until you somebody points it out, I had never even considered it. And then all of a sudden I was like, oh. Well, now I'll have to go back and listen
0: to it. Uh, He's very much settled into his loneliness now, starting to spill out into a bit of desperation. And this is his uh, soliloquy. It's a strange song for sure which is indicative of what uh, Jesus is going through. And it's right before his alter ego, St. Jimmy, starts to pop up. Perhaps this is a split personality or some uh, schizophrenia about to set in. It's weird. It's not my favorite. It's a weird tune. This is what it sounds like.
1: Armstrong explained on the band's episode of VH1 Storytellers, he said, quote, uh, Are We the Waiting sort of started when I was walking around on a misty night in New York City. And I think it's at a point in the record where the character is on the verge of losing his mind a little bit, and he's very vulnerable, and it's right before the St. Jimmy comes up, mm. which is exactly what you just said. So Yeah.
0: Hey, and I do like the uh, the strong choir-like background vocals yeah, it's, on the it's, track. It's, it's very it's, disciple-like, you know? Yes,
1: and it's definitely a very unique song on this album or i think any other green day album
0: yeah it's a powerful song it's just a odd little piece you know it's just kind of kind of strange but uh saint jimmy jesus is broken right and that is exhibited perfectly in the song both musically and lyrically uh it doesn't even let the last song end showing that he kind of snapped right in the middle yeah it just kind of juts in and what i would say i love that part too
1: where it just kind of bam into the next song
0: yeah, the last couple songs have been slower and more introspective pieces, and uh, fuck that. This is the punk sound of Green Day that we're used to, and it begins to manifest itself in this rage, this new identity that St. Jimmy sounds like this. St. Jimmy's coming down across
2: the alleyway, up on the boulevard like a zip gun on parade. Lights on the silhouette, he's disappointed, coming at you on the of. Counter-
1: Patron Saint of Denial, Matthew. Oh, hell yeah. The Nile River is 4,132 miles long, officially.
0: (laughs) Patron Saint of... Dad joke! Denial. (laughs) Uh, This is what Billy Joe said about uh, St. Jimmy. The original thought was that it was the same person. It could be two different people, I don't know. But I love St. Jimmy. He's pretty cool. He's pretty sexy. It's part of a split personality that I think a lot of people have. And they get disconnected from themselves a little bit and maybe follow a self-destructive path. And I think St. Jimmy sort of symbolizes that. I love that
1: pretty much everybody agrees that he based St. Jimmy on himself. Yeah, no and shit. And in an interview, he's like, I love St. Jimmy. He's pretty cool. He's pretty sexy. Right, he's pretty sexy. It's about you. I know, I'm pretty sexy. Is right? That, this is my character, Lyle. He's, uh, <laughs> he's pretty hot. He's got a million dollars and everybody wants to have sex with him.
0: <laughs> Wait, is that about you? No, that's Lyle. Uh, oh, Lyle, right? It's a blistering pace now. Du- Duke Lyle, he's a <laughs> British lord, uh, and you have Trey Cool to thank for the blistering pace. Yeah, Trey Cool was born Frank Edwin Wright III in West Germany. I can see why he picked Trey Cool. Right to a veteran helicopter pilot from the Vietnam War. Ooh. They relocated to California, and he was neighbors with Larry Livermore, singer of the band The Lookouts, and if you recall, the founder of Lookout Just make sure I get that right. Thank you. The first label for Green Day. It seemed like a natural fit for Cool to be in the band once the original drummer left because they were all kind of connected. He changed his name because he was a third and he thought he was very, or Trey, Cool.
1: Oh!
0: It's one of my very favorite rock and roll monikers of all time. He's an extremely athletic drummer and he has this habit when they play live of whipping his broken sticks behind him, uh, it's kind of mesmerizing to watch. I like found myself just staring at him because every two or three songs, he's just playing at a furious pace, and he would just whip his sticks into the screen behind him, just like poof, wow. and just start playing it. You just see him launch like constantly, <laughs> like whoosh, whoosh, just flying all over the place. It's a it's a fun show. It's definitely a good show. They're very entertaining, and it's That's weird because he has this little kit, but he's like ten feet high off off the deck on this on this uh, drum stand, just this little kit by himself, just the middle of fricking nowhere. And these sticks come launching, just like flying everywhere. So <laughs> it's very entertaining. Uh, give me Nova King? Not right now. We're in the middle of recording an episode. No, please. Oh,
1: this is the next song.
0: Oh, yes. this is absolutely my favorite song on the record. Really? Yeah. And I think a lot of it has to do with the really nice melody and some of it is the juxtaposition of the acoustic guitars against the electric guitars, I think it's done really smartly. It represents the two sides of Jesus' personality in conflict in the song. The sweet lilting parts are the Jesus of suburbia, wanting to dull the feeling of what his life has become and replace it with the sweet relief of drugs or some sort of numbing agent. Novocaine is the chemical trade name Mm -hmm. of uh, the local anesthetic, procaine, it was synthesized in 1905 in the hopes that it would replace cocaine for local anesthesia.
1: Hence the name.
0: Doctors Nobody. discovered that they preferred general anesthesia, but the drug found new life when dentists discovered its benefits. Either way, it makes for a great tune. Yeah. Like this. <laughs>
1: could totally be a jimmy buffett song i love this song (laughs) it's a good song it could totally be a jimmy buffett song if you change just a little bit
0: it's got the slide guitar in it now it bounces back and forth and i know that's been used in countless songs over the years but it's It's just great though i really like it it's it's a fun song and it takes absolutely no pauses as it bursts into the next track right boom she's a rebel short two minutes And this is the song that inspired the album cover. As you said, the line, she's a symbol of resistance, and she's holding on my heart like a hand grenade. That's a great line for a great song. And this song introduces a whole new character to our story. Old What's-Her-Name. What's-Her-Name. Here, Jesus of suburbia uh, meets this free-spirited, rebellious woman who he falls in love with. And the song details her strong-willed personality and her willingness to protest and rebel for her beliefs, which I think is giving him some structure. He has clearly been lost for a bit of a a, a bit of a long time here, t- turning to drugs to numb his pain. And boom, here's this really super cool chick that will fight for what she believes in, and not only is that inspiring, but it's also probably a bit of a turn on. Yeah. And the song sounds like this. She's a So, you know, uh turns out What's Her Name is based on a real person. Yeah. Do you uh, have that?
1: I do. Billy Joe said in an interview with Billboard, quote, I had a girlfriend named Amanda, this Cal student. I learned a lot about feminism through her. She gave me an education that I think was very timely for me. I was just a dumb kid, high school dropout. She was telling me about the way women have been objectified for so many years, and I was just listening. I wrote She as a love song to her, but it was also about learning about her activism.
0: Now, that's on Dookie. Yes, I was about to
1: say, She she, she, she sells seashells by the seashore. (laughs) She was a track from uh, Dookie. Yeah, he also
0: uh, wrote a song called Sassafras Roots. Mm -hmm. That's also about her and a song called Amanda, which, you know, weird. It's about her. She broke up with him and moved to Ecuador because the band sold out, in her opinion, (laughs) and they had left the punk scene. To be huge, Wow. so I guess she resented the lack of punk that he exhibited. Whatever, what's her name? So, is that what
1: you do when you break up with a punk band? You move to Ecuador. Ecuador, I,
0: that is the uh, that's that's a country of choice for uh, you know.
1: Is there a big expat ex punk
0: expat punk uh,
1: expat punk
0: Ecuadorian thing? Yeah, I thought so. But I guess that's why he refers to her like that because he didn't want to call her out by name in the song, so he calls her. What's her name?
1: Fair enough. So here's my question though, real quick. Mm -hmm. Do you think what's her name is real? Or is she another figment of Jesus of suburbia's imagination that is coming along to say, hey, you need to pick yourself up. You need to stop doing drugs. Is this sort of like, I picture it as the devil and the angel. Hmm. St. Jimmy's the devil on one shoulder and old what's her name's the angel on the other shoulder. And we'll get to why I picture it this way once we get to the very last song. I can see that. But obviously nobody nobody's ever, as far as I can tell, nobody has ever suggested that but she's kinda, not real. And it kind of, she is obviously presented as a real person. Just something that occurred to me when I was listening to it a little bit more critically.
0: And I guess you could do that. So the next song is called uh, Extraordinary Girl. And I really like this song too. In fact, I love the entire back half of this record. I think it holds up to the yeah. hit heavy side of uh, the first side. Uh, and the song has a very unique flair to it. It's not quite Latin. I'm not sure exactly how to describe it. It's The
1: beginning is a little Indian inspired. It's yeah. got that tabla played by Trey Cool,
0: Right. That's really good. It was
1: originally called Radio Baghdad,
0: oh, which so kind of makes me think it might be a little Middle Eastern, Eastern influence. I don't know. Uh, whatever. Here, check it out and you tell me.
2: Crying.
1: I do wonder, <laughs> I do wonder if, you know how we said they were sort of inspired by the Beatles and the the path that they went through? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I wonder if this is them kind of trying to emulate the Beatles when they did the their whole uh, uh, Indian and, and mystical period.
0: Well, the vocals are very reminiscent of, of the Fab Four too, yeah. right there. But so, you know, Jesus has now fallen in love with what's her name, which is... That's only the disconnect I get that, that there's a yeah. a bit of a love story here, but it happens very quickly. Yeah, uh, The track compares both characters and shows What's-Her-Name as a strong-willed woman, while it portrays Jesus of Suburbia as Whittle, kind of depressed man with no goals in life. Originally, What's-Her-Name is attracted to Jesus of Suburbia's alter ego, St. Jimmy, kind of a hardened, rebellious personality that suppressed... Jesus of Suburbia's loner psyche. St. Jimmy is the type of guy that What's-Her-Name likes, so the the two end up together. Though they both like each other, their two personalities clash, and their relationship doesn't work out naturally. Through this song, you get that she is strong-willed and independent. She doesn't have it all together, though. The lyrics, she sees the mirror of herself, an image she wants to sell to anyone willing to buy. He steals the image in her kiss from her heart's apocalypse, from the one called What's Her Name? I think those might be my favorite lyrics from the whole record. Hmm. Heart's Apocalypse is just a great, beautiful line in any <laughs> context. Putting those two words together, I would have never thought about that. That is freaking great. It I just sounds great. I can't
1: believe there's not an album named Heart's Apocalypse.
0: Right? right? Or that,
1: that's what I'm saying. That's really good. Just putting that out there for the band Heart. Hey,
0: it's your comeback album. Right? Heart's Apocalypse. Heart's
1: Apocalypse would be great.
0: Do you have more on this song? No. No? Let a bomb. And boom, boom. The whole thing blows up in his face. This is a letter bomb, two ways, mm. kind of like a Ceviche, but it is a, it's incendiary. She's referring to, uh, referencing a fighting society, but it is a figurative letter bomb because she just blew up their relationship in a huge way. This song is sung from what's her name's point of view, and she's kind of sick of Jesus's melodramatic bullshit. He's feeling sorry for himself all the time, he's been alone. Now she's over it, she's pissed. And she addresses him directly uh, saying this right here. Can understand what he said there, that first part, I'll quote it for you. You're not the Jesus of suburbia. The St. Jimmy is a figment of your father's rage and your mother's love. Made me the idiot America. So she's pissed. Yeah. She's calling him out, saying, you're not, you're, you're nothing. You made St. Jimmy up. That's not even the kind of person you really are. You're showing me who you really are. And I don't want any part of it. Yeah, she's mad. Yeah. And she feels like everyone has given up the fight. They all want to hang around and do nothing and feel sorry for themselves and let the world roll over them. And one of the other lines I love from this song is "Strike the match to light this fucking fuse." Like she's ready to go. My like,
1: favorite was uh, "Where have all the bastards gone?" <laughs> I was just I just like that line. I don't know why.
0: That song's a jam. That's one of my other yeah. favorite songs on the record because it it's just a uh, it's a banger. Yeah, as it were. Because should you wake me up only when September ends.
1: Which this one, uh, fanta- I'm going to say up front, fantastic song. Yeah. It. To me, this breaks the flow of the concept of the album.
0: It has very little to do with it, if anything at all.
1: You can kind of, if you really try it, you got to shoehorn it in there. Yeah, you got to jimmy horn it right in
0: there. Yep, got to get the old jimmy horn out. Uh,
1: Weirdly too, well. uh, The
0: St. Jimmy horn?
1: Yeah, You got to use the St. Jimmy horn to get it in there. (laughs) Uh, weirdly, while other songs on this album sold a lot better, like American Idiot, Boulevard of Broken Dreams and Holiday, I think this song actually has the most staying power out of every song on this album.
0: Oh, because for sure.
1: it gets played on every type of radio station. It's on pop punk. It's on popular. It's on every year around September. It's this and, uh, the 21st day of September both get played every around September? that time of year. Yeah, it's true. Yeah
0: it was written for one of their greatest hits records mm-hmm. shenanigans billy didn't feel like he was ready to record it so they bumped it to this record and i think that's the right choice yeah. at the right time because the song became huge and i don't think it would have been huge if they had buried it on a compilation record yeah so it peaked at number 6 on the billboard hot 100 and became a very important song symbolically after hurricane katrina and in the midst of the iraq war in fact the very successful video played off the symbolism by showing a soldier going off to war and leaving his wife behind, which helps to illustrate the song's central theme, which is loss, but not that kind of loss. Armstrong wrote the song about the death of his father who passed in 1982 of esophageal cancer. Allegedly, the song title comes from something Billy said to his mom right after the funeral – He locked himself in his room and told his mom to wake me up when September ends. Because he's just buried in grief. Yeah. And you never know the truth of something like that. Could be anecdotal. Yeah. But it does make a great story. Yeah, it's a good story, though. And if it's even remotely true, I
1: I think it's worth telling. Yeah.
0: And the line in the song, you know, 20 years has gone so fast, never made sense to me in the terms of the Iraq war. Yeah. Which it became, like, intertwined with. So it makes more sense now knowing that it, that's how long it had been since his dad had passed away.
1: Yeah. And he also uses the line, seven years have gone so fast, which is the amount of time from when they formed uh, Sweet Children until when they recorded this album.
0: Yeah, Nice symmetry there. Yeah. It also helps to explain why he shelved it for a couple of years. Yeah. It's an emotional song uh, to sing and record, but also knowing in the back of your head... That you're probably gonna play this every night for a oh, long God. time. Yeah. Um, you, you, have to, you have to mentally prepare yourself for something like oh, yeah. that. And of course, conservatives had a field day with it, calling the band exploitative for using the war to sell records, <laughs> right? Mike Durnt said this about the controversy rock and roll should be dangerous, it should be striking and stir questions. And I think that that video at the end of the day comes down to that core emotion of loss. Exactly. It's art. It's supposed to spur spur thoughts and emotions, not just lie there. Its job is to make you feel. And if you have strong feelings about soldiers going off to war or going through any sort of emotional loss, this song will bring those to the surface, and that's what makes it so great. That's effective. It sounds like this. All of that, it really is an excellent song. Yeah. It's another really effective use of the shuffling back and forth between acoustic parts and electric parts. And it, you know, it's just it's very good. Yeah. It's yeah. A, always been a great song.
1: It also did really well too. Number six on the US Billboard chart, number eight in Canada, number thirteen in Australia, made it to number two on the adult top forty and mainstream top forty charts, and number three on the adult contemporary chart.
0: Adult contemporary. Adult huh?
1: contemporary, number three.
0: Okay. All right. All right. Homecoming? Homecoming. Another sweet. Back to the story. Yeah. In fact, we're kind of at the climax of the story. You said climax. (laughs) As Jesus has decided to go back home after realizing it's no better out there all by himself, and at least he has his family back at home. It's another nine-minute song that, again, is just really five individual song fragments. Mm -hmm. Difference between this one and Jesus of Suburbia from the beginning of the record this one has writing and vocal contributions from everybody. Yes, it does. Do you have it broken down there?
1: Uh, a little bit, like, do you, uh, as in which yeah. part is which. So the five parts are uh, the death of St. Jimmy, East 12th Street, Nobody Likes You, Rock and Roll Girlfriend, uh, We're Coming Home Again.
0: Yeah. First part, Billy Joe sings about the, quote, suicide of St. Jimmy, basically saying that Jesus has decided that there really isn't a place in his life for that side of him. So he kills him, yeah. metaphorically. Part two is, you said, East 12th Street, where Mm -hmm. Billy Joe is singing about falling into a more normal life now that St. Jimmy is gone. And so is What's-Her-Name. And he's not exactly sure that he likes it. From the words, uh, maybe an unemployment office, job application, maybe. Hard to tell. Either way, he's pining for the days of doing nothing but smoking cigarettes and hanging out. And maybe the normal life isn't for him. Yeah, The fun little uh, tidbit, Hmm. when uh, Billy Joe was arrested for a DUI in 2003... He was booked at the Alameda Sheriff's Office. Its location, East 12th Street.
1: Oh, hey oh. <laughs> uh, uh, nobody likes you. Uh, you get to hear uh, Mike Dern singing a little bit there. Right. Which is very nice. He also wrote the lyrics for this part. Uh,
0: rock and Roll Girlfriend. Sung uh, by Trey Cool. Yep. And uh, this more reminiscing.
1: As a character that doesn't really get introduced, but his name is Tunny. Tunny. Yeah, Tunny.
0: He's, he's in the musical. Yeah. And it sounds out of place, you know? Because he's basically reading a letter that was written to Jesus of suburbia. Also notice that when Trey sings, I haven't drank or smoked nothing in over 22 days, you can hear a snippet of Billy Joe singing, Don't Want to Be an American Idiot, way, way in the background.
1: (laughs) That's awesome.
0: Which may represent the idea uh, that he's reading a letter. Jesus is reminded of the days when he was a non-conforming punk that wanted to change the world. And I love that little bit, right? Because he still had that in the back of his head. And the final part Part five is called We're Coming Home Again again sung by Billy Joe and it's very more, much recorded as a, a march like they're marching down the streets announcing their arrival back home part of that song sounds like this wonder that this was turned into a Broadway musical? Not at all. I, I think mean, that
1: it definitely fits that mold really well without a lot of modification. Yeah, the way the whole thing is
0: constructed, yeah. the holes in the plots that you can fill in with additional songs if you needed to be, yeah. all the different musical directions you can go, it's no surprise. And it did win two Tonys, Yeah, was nominated for Best Musical, ended up having 421 performances, some of which included Billy Joe as St. Jimmy. Yeah. So that's pretty cool.
1: That would have been a great like Ladies and gentlemen, tonight's uh, version of, and you're like, oh shit, who's being replaced? St. Jimmy will be played by Billy Joe Armstrong.
0: It's probably that what jackass. Probably that jackass from American
1: Idol. <laughs> Billy Joe, yay! <laughs> oh shit. What's her name? What's her name? This right here, this song to me is why I think not only is What's Her Name made up, I think the whole, everything we've heard on this album so far yeah. is made
0: up. Ooh, it's all in his head?
1: It's all, this is, it turns out that Jesus of Suburbia, is reminiscing about a past that never really happened. Interesting. That's why he's, he's telling a tall tale basically to some friends. He's back in his little small town and everybody knows he disappeared for three months, 10 years ago, <laughs> and nobody knows he won't ever talk about it. And he's never told anybody where he went, what happened for those three months. And then he showed back up and everybody knew he was a little bit more burnt out than he was when he left. And he shows back up and starts telling, you know, finally, he gets drunk one night and starts telling this story and he's making it up as he goes along. So he's like, oh, I got addicted to drugs and I was in the big city and it was And great. Then I met this chick. And then I met this chick and she was real hot. I can't remember what her name was because we were always so high and blah, 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 <laughs> blah. And this is him telling the story and wrapping it all up. And he absolutely, you know, just he's bullshitting his way through it. That's Again, my own personal interpretation, I couldn't find anybody to corroborate that online, but not the first time I heard it, but in re-listening to it for doing this episode, that struck me as like, oh yeah, not only is this this kind of a wrap-up song, that's exactly how I thought that it was being wrapped up.
0: It's so weird, because when I read through the lyrics, it doesn't even sound like... He well, he's not. An, he's an anti-hero. Mm-hmm. She's the the hero of the story. Yeah, St- sticking to her beliefs the whole way through, sh- and but was the same person.
1: That's kind of why I think she might be made up too,
0: right? Because, because
1: she's too perfect. Right? She's too much like a. No, I'm a hardcore punk and like idealistic. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like this anyway.
0: It makes way more sense now that I think about. Like, remember, remember, whatever. whatever. It seems so long ago. I don't it even remember so when ago. it happened. Uh,
1: what, what's her name? I don't. I don't. She had a name for sure. I just don't remember. What I remember it was. What it
0: was. I
1: mean, yeah. For just, the
0: sake of the story, let's just call her, what's yeah, her yeah. name. Yeah, let's just call. Her, well, what's her name? That makes I, sense. Again, now. Now I'm gonna have to read through the lyrics more right, specifically. I
1: didn't super dig deep into this. I just kind of did a shallow search to see if anybody else had had the same thought, and I didn't come up with anything. Hopefully, though, somebody out there does have this thought and can get in touch with us.
0: I like it. It really is a fantastic album. Uh, It is. It's one of my favorites. And it's funny, you wouldn't think that this would be the album, uh, but it is one that got me through some really dark times. Uh, This was released right around the time my mom was fading fast. Uh, She passed on October 29th, 2004, and the last two months of her life are kind of like a blur to me. All I remember from that period is pain, and it's all really fuzzy. But I do remember being so consumed with my thoughts all the time leading up to her passing that I looked forward to the hour-long commute I had to work back and forth every day uh, because it gave me a reason to put this record on as loud as I could and scream every lyric and cry (laughs) and just kind of be alone with your anger because that's where I was at that moment. It wasn't so much grief. I was pissed. And this type of record is perfect for that. And I continued... To utilize that system after she passed because I needed that release, so I am very grateful to this record. It's very important, and uh, every time I put it on, man, I love it. And now the memories have you know turned from from all that pain to to good memory, you know. Yeah, remembering my mom. So I love listening to this record. So that's cool. Uh, it's a uh, it's great. So if you want to you know get a hold of us and tell us that. What what album you like or, yeah. you know, that you like this one. I know from doing the research for this Green Day fans love
1: talking about Green Day.
0: That's true. And they <laughs> love
1: pointing out what everybody else has got wrong about Green Day.
0: Oh, good. good, so, great.
1: Please get in touch. Facebook dot com forward slash audio judo at audio judo on Twitter at audio underscore judo on Instagram. Or if you really want to get in touch directly with us, info at audio judo dot com. We do get those emails directly on mm-hmm, our phone, both mm-hmm. of us, uh, So, and we usually respond to Well, Matthew usually responds to them. I usually look at it and go, oh, we'll get to that later. And then Matthew's <laughs> already written some 20-page response like, let me address all your concerns, sir. And, I just uh, want to be professional. It's fair. It's fair. I, I would be unprofessional. So, yeah.
0: Oh, we, we we all have skills yeah. and strengths. Yeah. Um, what have we got coming up, Matthew? We have episodes coming up from the zombies, Oh yeah, from Radiohead, mm-hmm. Harry Nilsson, mm-hmm. and KISS, uh, so make sure you come back for that. I might, if we're doing the video.
1: I'm not going to say I'm going to do makeup for the kiss episode,
0: but uh, you should. I should. Uh, other than that, make sure you check out the video for this on YouTube. Uh, you can get to the link from our website audiojudo.com. And other than that, we will talk to you again in two weeks. Bye bye, everyone. Take care,
1: everybody.